Hear the word of God from 1 Samuel and Psalm 51, starting with 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 5. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. And now to chapter 12. <laughs> so, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor, had, the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Psalm 51. This is for the director of music, a Psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. So good to be here with all of you on this beautiful fall morning. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord. It is a wonderful gathering with all you wonderful, awesome, incredible, uh, beautiful, wonderful, stupendous. I'll try to think of some more words, but those will do for now. All you incredible people, magnificent, glorious, marvelous people. We're continuing in our worst series in the history books of Samuel and Kings. And last week, Pastor Eric shared about my favorite person in the Bible. Actually, wait, never mind. I can't say my favorite person. My second favorite person in the Bible. To say somebody's my favorite over Jesus just is, seems blasphemous. So my second person in the, favorite person in the Bible is David, the man after God's own heart. Eric shared how this, the rise of this shepherd king, and today, as you can tell from the reading, I'm going to share about the infamous sin of David. The heinous crime he committed and his repentance afterwards. The fall of David in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is one of the saddest accounts in all of scripture. Yet it has great value and offers us hope about the greatness of God's forgiving grace. Also warning us about the terrible consequences of sin. And we reach 2 Samuel, David is at his pinnacle at this point. His throne has been established. His, most of his enemies have been subdued. Preparations are being made for the building of the temple in Jerusalem. He has been established as king. There's some more armies, some more battles to fight here and there. The temple hasn't been made yet, but he's on his way. He feels good. 2 Samuel 11.1 says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And this passage starts with a tidbit of info that we can easily overlook. The season, the season that this occurred was in the spring when normally David would be off of his armies fighting the battles that it took to protect his kingdom and to expand it. The fighting didn't stop, but David didn't feel like going out this time. One of the incredible traits of David's leadership in the past was that he was the warrior king who went off with his men, who bled and fought alongside them. 
but he didn't feel like it this time. It doesn't say why. Maybe he got lazy. Maybe he got tired of war. Maybe he had important things to do. The point is, that's being established here right away, though, is that the point is the land wasn't safe yet. There were still battles to be fought, and normally this warrior king who went off with his men decided to stay back. God didn't tell him to stay back. God didn't tell him to stop. He just stopped. And I would venture to say that his staying back was actually contrary to the will of God, even though it wasn't explicitly said in the scriptures. Because I feel like that point points out this fact that he should have been doing something else. Instead, he was at home. Does this make sense so far? Guys, can I tell you something? Before we get into this, I wish I want to throw this little tidbit, little side note out there. Often heinous sin starts with one little mistake. Does that make sense? It's not often that you just take a big step into like huge sin, right? It's often one little thing that you do first. One thing that's contrary to the will of God first. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me so far? Please hear that. Because here's the deal. I think most people, we sit back and we hear about sin. We hear about people committing heinous acts and we think, I could never do that. Am I right? Most of you are probably sitting here like, what David did, you would never do. And I hope, you hope you feel that way. I hope you do feel that way. But one little act often can lead to another. That can snowball to another. And so this is a quick side word of warning that stay true to what God called you in the little things and to be faithful in the big things. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? So then, David should be off at war, leading his men, but instead he's at home, and he goes out on the rooftop, and he sees Bathsheba. On purpose, on accident, I don't know, he was just being weird, or he just happened, it was something that just happened to happen. But this sight spurs him on to great sin. David sends someone to go get her, and he, he sleeps with her. Sin heaped on more sin. David tries to cover it up. He sends for Uriah so that he can cover up the fact that she's pregnant. Uriah, being too good a man, says, my fellow troops are out in the field and they're in the mud and I can't go home. I'm gonna sleep here on the floor. His plan doesn't work. In contrast to David, Uriah is a good man who stands with his troops and his fellow soldiers. Uriah the Hittite, by the way, which by the way, I'll write up, there's gonna be a post on the realm, why, why that's significant. King David then orders Uriah to his death. It didn't work. The cover-up didn't work. Right? And you guys know what that's like when you, you just sin, you want, you want to cover it up, and you do all this stuff, and all of a sudden it's not working, it's not working, so you start scrambling and scrambling, trying to figure out other things to do, and you dig a deeper and deeper hole. And David dug a deep hole. He makes an incredibly harsh decision to cover up his heinous sins, heinous crimes that he committed. He decides to send a loyal soldier to his death. He ends up killing Uriah and then taking Bathsheba as his own wife and she bears him a son. Then the prophet Nathan shows up and does what a prophet is supposed to do. He calls out the king. He gives the word of God to the king and he tells King David this story about a rich man and a poor man how the rich man took advantage of the poor and stole everything that that poor man loved. David got so angry, promised vengeance they like one of those ultimate gotcha style. Nathan said, but it was you, David, who did that. Which I, I would have been honest with you. This is a, a sad, heinous moment. But I would have loved there to have been there when Nathan pulled this on David. 
Because I mean, he got David good with this. Made him a story. And David's getting angry and angry. How could that rich man do that? And David's like, it was you. I was like, oh. Love it. Second Samuel 12, 13 says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's so much for us to learn from this story of a great king who committed such sins. We learn about our own sin nature. We learn about how easily sin creeps in. We can learn about the nature of repentance and forgiveness. We can learn about grace. And I want us to learn all those elements from the past today. But I want us to focus our attention to David's response to his sin after he was confronted with it. Psalm 51, written in response to Nathan's confrontation. And it starts off like this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David starts off crying first and foremost for mercy. He knows he needs it. He knows he doesn't deserve to even cry out to God, but he has nowhere else to turn to. So he falls on his knees and he begs and pleads for mercy. It's like when you know you did wrong. Your parents got you dead to rights. All your excuses have fallen through the wayside. It doesn't work anymore. So you can't argue anymore. You can't say it wasn't me anymore. You can't say it was your sister or your brother anymore. So you look at your parents and like, okay, I'm done. I got no more excuses. Please be nice. And here's David falling before his God saying, God, you got me. You got me. I have nowhere else to turn. You're my God. Have mercy on me. He's appealing to the character of a God he knows so well. And he uses three verbs here in asking from God to do something. He says, blot out, wash, and cleanse. Three different terms, but they're basically saying the same thing. He's saying his need for God to blot out. The term blot out is a word that's used a number of times actually in the Hebrew Bible. Perhaps the most pertinent one is that's precisely what God does when he says he's going to do the flood. Same Hebrew verb. It's God sent the flood in order to wipe out, to wipe the slate clean, to start all over again. David says, I need the slate washed clean. I need you to take this, take this, this, oh, away from me. I need you to wash it away, wipe it clean, blot it out like you did the earth with the flood. There's the second term that he's used here. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And this is more a verb akin to washing clothes, like at the river. You know, like you kind of like, who, uh, I'm going to ask this question. Has anybody ever actually used like one of those, uh, what are those things called? Washboard and you scrub. I've actually used one before. Anybody? I'm just curious. I've used one before. But that's what this is, idea is, is scrubbing on the washboard. A scrubbing clean, getting plunged into the water and scrubbing over and over again. That's the verb you just scrub me as if you're washing clothes because it's filthy. Scrub me, make me clean. The vital word he says is cleanse me from my sin. That word is a reference more to ceremonial cleansing. It's something for religious use. In other words, he's saying that will you cleanse me to be used by you? Will you cleanse me to be worthy of you? God understands that what he has done has scarred him, has stained him. And that's what sin does. It stains you. It scars us. And we ought to be broken when we sin because we recognize what we have done. We recognize what we have brought upon ourselves. We recognize that we have just attached something to us that has consequence, that forms scars. Every last one of us, we have scar tissue 
from the sins that we've committed in our past. Now, I want you to hear this. You're forgiven in Christ Jesus. Please, I don't want you to own the sin that you've committed in the past and say, oh, I'm still driven by, I'm still rolled by. No, you're not. The sin you've committed in the past is to be forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ and by his power only. And when you're forgiven, you are forgiven. It is wiped clean. But, I want you to hear this, but scar tissue forms. Does that make sense? Scar tissue is there, and we have to live with it. We have to live with the consequences of some of the scars that we have. There's scar tissues on me. Or the sin that I know I've committed in my past are still there. And some of it have it from generations of sin. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of us are still suffering from generations of scar tissue that's there. Yes, I know I'm forgiven. Yes, I'm set free from sin. Yes, praise God that I am. But the scars are still there. Because sin stains us. Guys, can I tell you, there's so many out there in our midst or in the world who have such a flippant attitude towards sin. They're not crushed by sinning and the sin that crushes us. And I often think that's the case because we don't understand the consequences of sin. We don't really understand or get the consequences of sin. Especially for believers, we think, okay, Jesus died for my sin, so I don't understand why... Why should we even worry about sin? He's, I'm forgiven from it, right? So sin's not that big a deal because Jesus died for it. I'm forgiven. No. Verses three and four says, For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David was broken over his sin because he knew the consequences of his sin. That it stains you, it makes you unclean, it scars you, it stays with you. And you do it against a just and holy God. I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, when you read this passage where David says, against you and only you have I sinned, I do a double take. I'm like, huh? What, David? Against God only? You're wrong. You sinned against um, Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against your family, your wife, your household. You sinned against your people. You sinned against a lot of people here, David. You kind of messed up, right? You, know, you sinned against all your soldiers in your army when you treat those lives so flippantly. You sinned against a ton of people. How do you dare you say you've only sinned against God? Anybody else think that way when you read this? I thought, I, I'm like, that's my thought process as well. Because often sin isn't just you and God all the time, right? Sin often affects a lot of people. But David's point here is not to make light of sinning against other people. It's to make great of how great it is to sin against God, the only holy and righteous one. Because here's your deal. Other people know what it's like to sin. Other people have sinned. Other people are still sinning. His household, all these people, even the people he's wronged, they've all sinned before. But only God is Perfect. And against this picture of God's perfection and righteousness and holiness is David sitting against. My people, please don't miss how important God's holiness is. We make so light of that often in our culture. We make God like us and bring him down to our level so we might feel comfortable with him. We make him like us. He is not like us. And can I tell you something that we should not feel comfortable all the time with who God is. 
Because he is bigger, he is greater, he is more holy, he is creator, he is sustainer, he is magnificent, he is glorious, he is the epitome of beauty and righteousness. He is beyond us. But because he loves us and crafted us for intimacy with him, he then makes himself accessible to us. The comfort that comes, that we get to come, is not a comfort of a God who lowers himself. It's not a comfort from a God who's less than. It's a comfort from a great God who chooses, who chooses to become accessible to us through the work of Jesus. Guys, we need to be falling on our knees before majesty like that, not taking an advantage and thinking, ah, he's just a senile old guy who'll love us anyway. Am I right? Can I be honest with you? Just be real with you. Many times some of our relationship with God, we treat him a little bit like Santa and a little bit like our grandfather. And if, if, when I say our grandfather, we all have different grandfathers. So let me explain it this way. We treat him a little bit like Santa where if we do good, maybe he'll do good things for us, right? And he may have some power to give, offer his good presents. Or we treat him like our grandfather. When I say grandfather, like my grandfather who doesn't really want to be that involved in my like, grandkids' lives. My dad's awesome. He loves my grandkids, his grandkids, but he's more like, I don't know what to do with kids, you know? But I want to shower them with, uh, here's some gifts. Here's some money. And I want to spoil you because I really don't know what to do with you. Can I tell you, that's not who God is. God is creator. He holds the universe. He spoke and the universe, the expanse of the world came into being. He sustains it. Every moment is sustained by the power of this God. He's so holy and so righteous that our sin is worse than filth. It's worse than rubbish. It's worse than garbage. It's worse than, it's worse than poop before him. He's a holy God. He's a holy God. And may we never lose our awe of who God is. May we never like light of our sin. Brokenness of our sin is appropriate because our sin is at the front to a holy God. Can I ask an honest question to you guys? When was the last time you were broken over your sin? When was the last time you were broken over your sin? Please hear me well, my people. I'm not saying that. You, here's a difference. Here, here's what I want to say to you really quickly. Number one, this is not, I'm not asking you when was the last time you felt guilty over your sin. There's a difference. Let me explain what that means, okay? Problem is right now, we, create a, we put a place of feeling upon the word guilt. We feel guilty because we didn't live up to God's standards. We feel guilty because we didn't live up to the people's standards that we, we have in our lives. We feel guilty. But guilt and innocence is not a feeling. It's a status, isn't it? Are you with me so far? So if you're guilty before God, that's your status. But then what happens in Jesus Christ? He pays the penalty of your status and changes your status from guilty to innocent, to loved one, to accepted, to heir, to my beloved child. Your status before him is paid in full. Your status before him is not the sin that you committed. So you're no longer guilty. You're now innocent before him. You're not righteous before him. So this feeling of guilt over not living up to the standard that God's called you to, that is not reality. Does that make sense? You guys, you guys with me so far? But brokenness of your sin is something different. 
brokenness of your sin is this understanding that you've committed sin against a holy and righteous God. It's an acknowledgement of a need that you have for his saving work in your life. And it's an acknowledgement that he is a good and righteous and holy God and your sin is an affront to him. My people, brokenness and conviction is given by the Holy Spirit. And it's given as a gift. Because brokenness over your sin is the off-ramp on the highway that you're on. Does that make sense? So if you're on a highway and you're going in the wrong direction, right? You're going the wrong direction on your highway. The idea of repentance is to turn around. That's what repentance means, right? Is to turn away and turn around. Well, how do you get to that repentance point in your life? Is you need to get off the highway. The way you get off the highway is by brokenness. Brokenness is the exit on the highway that you go on that leads to repentance. Brokenness is a gift. So my people, may you be broken of your sin because brokenness is a gift that gets you on the road to repentance. Puts you on the right road. Listen to what he says in verses seven through 10. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't miss this. He says, purge me with system and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Guys, there's no rejoicing. There's no joy. There's no gladness. He needs that only God can provide him in. Verses 9 and 10, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Guys, it's only when we experience genuine brokenness, that authentic weight of our own sin, then we're actually able to magnify the Lord and the work that he's done and see him in the right way. Because here's the deal, that if we don't acknowledge the brokenness of our own sin and the brokenness of our own hearts, that we don't see the separation that really exists between us and God. And we don't see the powerful work of grace and love that Jesus accomplished to bridge that separation. Brokenness is a gift. Guys, can I tell you that this is not the same of a feelings of guilt over your sin. Remember that. But brokenness is a gift given to us. And we recognize God is worthy of our worship. It's when we come to the end of ourselves that we turn to the only source of our worship. Brokenness leads to repentance that leads to restored relationship. I, uh, my senior, junior, senior year of high school, I have a younger sister, she's a freshman in high school. And I'll probably say throughout her whole middle school life, I was the worst big brother that existed. I'm just gonna be honest about that. Maybe not the worst ever, but pretty bad, right? I was I basically made it known to her that her whole existence annoyed me. But that's kind of the way I did. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm just gonna be. I wanted nothing to do with her. She she wanted to go somewhere with me. I'm like no. She wanted to do something with me. I'm like no. And she talked to me or she tried to come over and say I'm like no, I don't want to talk to you. I was a bad big brother. I became a Christian my junior year of high school, and my life started changing. But one area did not change. I was still a terrible big brother. I was. I was. She wanted to go to youth group with me. And I said, oh, no way. That's my thing. Beginning of my senior year, I started realizing how heinous my sin was. So I invited my sister. Actually, no, it wasn't my best friend invited my sister to go to youth group with us. And I actually hated it at first. 
we want to know a little retreat. It's kind of like a weekend little retreat thing. I don't know like what you would call it, like a disciple now or, a, or a, something like that. And there I was confronted. Uh, they gave a talk, a recorded sermon by a guy named Dave Busby. And the talk was facing and embracing your depravity. And I remember listening to this talk and I started thinking, what a terrible jerk I've been to my sister this whole time. And how dare I share the gospel with anybody else? And so I remember, to this day, I remember, at the end of the time together as a youth group, I stood in front of the whole youth group, and I confessed. I confessed what a terrible brother I've been to a loving little sister. I confessed in front of the whole group that my sister was worthy of so much more love than this, and that I was a terrible person, and I did not show at all the love of Christ to her. And I remember she came up on stage, she gave me a hug, and she forgave me. And I'll say, now, to this day, we still have an incredible relationship. Not perfect, because I'm still a terrible big brother in ways, but I'm more overbearing now. But <laughs> it's when I came to face and embrace my brokenness first is what led me to repentance, that led me to restored relationship with my sister. And I thank God so much that brokenness existed, that I was able to weep over my sin and over the way I've treated her. So that now me and my sister are, we probably talk on the phone probably about four times a week. My son FaceTimes her like all the time. That's more of an annoying thing, but I'm just saying. <laughs> brokenness leads to repentance. If it leads to guilt, that's not real brokenness. It leads to repentance. Amen? Verses 11 through 12, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Do you see it? A restored relationship out of brokenness. Verses 13 through 19, the rest of this, is a result of the restored relationship. It's lips praising God, teaching transgressors, prospering Zion, offering right sacrifices. The rest of that psalm is basically saying, here's what repentance and brokenness leads to. Repentance, repentance leads to right relationship. Right relationship leads to transgressors speaking your truth, to lips praising, to Zion prospering. People, may we see our brokenness. May we see our need of God. May we weep over our sin. And may that be the offering that leads us to repentance. I want to leave you three points that comes out of this story of David's sin and repentance. Number one, God's amazing grace to those who repent. God's amazing grace to those who repent. When David is confronted by Nathan, he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan declares the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. He forgives. God reconciles David to himself. David writes in Psalm 432, he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Paul later uses the example of God's forgiveness of David to show that God's way of salvation has, has always been to the unworthy. That is through grace by faith. Guys, I am saddened by David's account of his great sin. But I'm also thankful. I'm thankful that this is recorded in Scripture because what wonderful hope God's grace offers to sinners like me, sinners like us. God justifies the ungodly. He saves the immoral, the murderers who repent. God invites sinners to run to him for compassion. He forgives even me. He will forgive even you. 
God, I don't know what you've done. I don't know the thoughts you've had. I don't know the, the nature of your sin, but your, nothing you've done is too big for God. It's too heinous for God. You can be forgiven. Grace is that mighty. Number two, forgiven sin still has consequences. Forgiven sin still has consequences. It's wonderful to read of God's lavish forgiveness. And we should also pay careful attention, though, that there was painful consequences the Lord brought upon David for his sin. It is necessary to uphold the Lord's reputation to teach future generations that sin has consequences. And you can see throughout the rest of David's life, the rest of David's life was rife with conflict. His own children engaged in sin over and over. He lost loved ones. There was war and there were battles. His life was nowhere near picturesque after this happened. It was hard and sin affected it in many ways. My people, sin has consequences. It has effects. Many professing Christians take sin far too lightly. An example of David should remind us that God doesn't. I've seen it over and over again in my life in ministry, guys. I've seen it when I talk to people and I counsel people. Sin exacts a heavy price. It leaves scars upon scars. It makes memories that you don't forget. Sin costs. God forgives sin with great grace and great price. He forgave with the ultimate price. He gave his son to die upon it. He paid the ultimate price for our sin, but it still costs. It leaves scars. And some of you are still suffering from the scars sin has left. Whether they're your own or others, you're still suffering. But, can I tell you also this? The scars that they leave behind can also end up telling a beautiful story. Yes, you may have scars, and yes, sin still hurts, and yes, sin still has consequences, but God still uses those consequences and still can use those scars for his glory. Like he'll redeem even those scars in your life. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? My people, I want you to hear this. I don't want you to miss it. Yes, sin has consequences. Yes, we don't want to take too lightly sin. But know, know this, that the scars even sin leaves behind can tell the story of an amazing God, an amazing redemptive work that he does. There was a thing that we used to say back when, we played, when I was younger, we played sports a lot, and the, the coaches would say stuff like, you know, um, scars are cool or chick stick scars or stuff like that. In other words, basically trying to inspire the football players or the basketball players to work harder and ignore all the wounds you have. And I'm not going to say that because scars hurt. Some of you guys are carrying wounds that are still so painful. And I'm not saying that God wants you to have those scars. I'm not saying that either. But I am saying that our God is good. I'm saying God can redeem even the worst of scars you have and tell an incredible story through it. He did it with other scars. He did it with scars in the hands and feet of Jesus. He does it all the time. He'll do it with yours too. Number three, ultimately, we need a better king than David. 
This is the central theme in all first and second Samuel. While David surpasses all those who came, he, he surpasses Saul, he surpasses the judges, and he surpasses the kings that came afterwards, him as a leader of Israel, he still falls short of what God's people need. While his good qualities as the man to God's own heart point ahead to Christ, his fall just reminds us that we need a worthier king. We need a better king. We need Jesus, the son of David, the flawless leader who never failed when he was tested. He had no sins to cover up. He never abused his power. Israel was safe under him. Moreover, it was because of God's plan to put Jesus forward as a lamb before the slaughter 1,000 years later that he was able to forgive the sins of even Old Testament saints like David along with the rest of us who fall short. The reality is all of us know what sin is. We've, we've sinned and we've all been sinned against and it affects us. The only solution we have to sin, the only hope we possess is found in the true and better king and his name is Jesus. He's the only answer to sin. His death and resurrection has paid the full penalty of sin that no longer do we pay the cost of sin. The penalty of sin is no longer on us to pay. In Christ alone can we have a receipt that says paid in full by the blood of Jesus. So brokenness needs to be our response to sin in our life, but hope of repentance is the next step. We don't stay in our brokenness because Jesus Christ, our true and rightful king, has made the way for us to be in a right relationship and have true worship of our God. Do you know that this morning? Do you believe that your sin can be forgiven and you can be washed clean today? Those of you, wherever you're at, whatever thing that you've done, whatever guilt you're hanging on to, whatever thing that you're holding on to, whatever scar that's holding you back, do you understand, do you believe, do you know that this morning you can be set free? That Jesus is provided the way, that he's the king that we need. All these other kings just point to him. All these other kings point to our need of him. But he is the king that we need. And God provided him in the perfect time, in the fullness of time. And he lived a life of love, fully obeying the commands of God. And he died a willing death, taking upon himself the penalty and the guilt of the world. But he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected Resurrected show that he conquered sin and death and that we now have a hope that is eternal. This could be your truth and your reality today if you don't know God in this way. And the invitation for those of you who don't know God is this, you can know him. You can know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I invite you during our worship time to find somebody to go pray with. Tell them that this is what you're searching for. One of our prayer people would love to pray with you. Would love for you to know God in this way. And for those of you who are sitting in here and you're hearing this message, may you find that true brokenness leads to repentance. And brokenness over your sin will lead to right relationship and worship. And it restores Zion. So when we face our brokenness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, God, the message and the lesson that we learned from David. How he was a man after your own heart who still committed such great sin against you. And God, that we can see the results and the cost and the penalty of sin. God, we can see how our sin and how we should be broken by our own sin. 
But God, you are a good God who forgives, who forgives through the work of Jesus. So God, may we be broken over our own sin. And may that lead us to repentance. And so lead us to right relationship with you so that the community and your kingdom may advance. God, we love you. And we thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.